Cream Ray, your host at the One Soccer Nation podcast. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Stephen Short. Uh, Stephen, it's, it's been a long time coming. We've met back in 2022 at the USL Mid-Year event. Uh, but we never spoke. And we also ran into each other, uh, quote unquote per se, at uh, back in Miami, 2023 in November at Soccer X, but still never spoken. We recently just spoke on the phone. Uh, yes, uh, Was it yesterday or two days ago? Two days ago, I think. Was it two days? I know it's gone by so fast. I think it was two days ago, but it, it kind of feels like it was just yesterday. So um, we're finally connecting, and now he's on the One Soccer Nation podcast. Super excited to have you on, Stephen. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how we continue to cross paths, but we were all both so busy that we really didn't have a chance to sit down, did we? Absolutely. So, Stephen, you've you know been a part of the United Soccer League for 12-plus years. And then the last club that you were just with in USL1 was Lex- Lexington uh, Sporting Club. You've done a lot in soccer. So I'm going to start off with my favorite question. Um, how did you get involved in the beautiful game? Oh, well, uh, it's a long path, but it's, you know, thanks for having me, first and foremost. Um, actually, I've wanted to get into the game ever since 94, um, believe it or not. I uh, grew up playing the game, went to Holland, Morocco, and Orlando at the World Cup. And like, man, this can be kind of cool as a career. So through high school and college, played Division II um, soccer as a goalkeeper. That was a short stint and found my way in the front office of uh, the school. So um, I've always been in athletics and sports industry. And then um, by chance, when I lived in Tampa working for another company, had a friend that worked at USL and um, helped make some introductions for me. And I started there in 2010. And then I left there, was it 2022, fall of 22? So uh, almost a 13-year tenure there. Uh, everything from uh, some days I even served as a graphic artist, but I wasn't good at that. But mostly on, on our development side, so growing the league, uh, finding new ownership, new cities, and building some stadiums. Amazing. I mean, you know, though you worked at different capacities within USL, um, you know, was it something that you learned on the go or were you already trained, ready to go? And then you you popped into USL and then you were just working it. No, I had a lot of, you know, what, prior to USL, I had some really tremendous opportunities. I worked at the University of Tennessee Athletic Department and the marketing department um, through undergrad and through grad school. Uh, after that, went to Disney Sports and the event management world. So worked with the Disney Marathon. Um, a lot of the road races then, which are, you know, it's amazing to see what those have all turned into, which is unbelievable. But was exposed to things like the World Baseball Classic, the Disney Soccer Showcase, um, and AAU through that route. After there, um, spent some time at EA Sports, kind of every gamer's dream to work at a gaming company. I uh, was there on a marketing contract for, believe it or not, Madden 07, um, and a couple other titles that were going on while I was there. And then uh, after that, it's, it's, it's a complete fluke. I ended up at USL, but it truly really is about the people you know. Um, and that's who helped introduce me to the organization. And it all worked out. And you'll see, no, it's nearly two decades later, and I'm still in the game. Amazing. I'm going to make a quick comment on EA. I've spent a lot of time playing FIFA back mm-hmm. in my younger days. So that, that was always good times. Um, you know, focusing in on, on USL, you mentioned, you know, finding ownership groups working you know i think that you you started the expect well not started you were in the 
you were part of the beginning of USL one expansion in the beginning. Is that correct? Uh, USL League One, yes, yes, um, in its current iteration. So it was, uh, I think, around the fall of 2017 when the USL was pushing the, at that time, USL Pro, then USL pushed it up to the second division. We had a plan in place to move um, back into the third division space within the US soccer landscape. So uh, I worked with a couple individuals that ultimately um, drove that launch everything from market development into getting the league into its first year and a half of operation sanctioning under U.S. soccer. So that was kind of the uh, pinnacle, I would say, a project as a kid that I've always wanted to do is start a league on my own, even though I didn't own it, but, you know, it's something you own the process. Um, and it was exciting to do that because not a lot of people can say they've had that chance to do a U.S. soccer sanctioned pro league in this country. So. Um, we had a great infrastructure at USL, a lot of the great resources, especially other teams and owners to talk to about if we could do it differently, how would we do it? Uh, we were also able to bring a lot of people along for that ride. You know, we were very transparent on social media about where we were going, who we were talking to, uh, what we were seeing in the cities and what made them ex exciting, what can make them great soccer cities. Uh, so I think that made it a little bit more special because finally people were wondering where we were going the next time. And that was, geez, 2017, 2018. And then we started playing in 19. So that was a whirlwind of a 24 to 36 months. Got it. So two years. So you said 2017 to 2019. So two years mm -hmm. there. Um, and then 2017, how far back is that? We're talking about seven years back now from, from today's date. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to believe. How many teams did you guys start off with? We launched with 10 uh, was the number. The Federation had a minimum of eight. Um, you know, depending on what day of the week, it was eight to 10 to 16 teams. I mean, it was, there were a lot of very interesting groups there at the beginning that stayed around for a little bit. But when it came time for us to like, you know, put the foot down and go, it, we launched with that initial set. It was an exciting time. I mean, we had a lot of infrastructure from uh, USL that we built on. You know, a lot of great infrastructure where we understood how we wanted departments to operate. We had a lot of historical data from other clubs to kind of hone in and set some expectations. But uh, it was really great to see these new cities that were really jumping to lead uh, the grassroots campaigns of pro soccer in the country. Amazing. So for our viewers at One Soccer Nation, USL1 stands for United Soccer League One, which is a third division yeah. professional soccer league in the U.S. Uh, soccer pyramid. They also have, USL also has USL Championship, which is Division Two. So when you say historical data, I'm assuming that's what you're referring to as USL Championship data to build out the USL one. Yeah, with some championship data, I mean, that started back in 2010. So uh, we had, you know, USL at that time under different brand names, um, had what was the first division, second division, uh, that ultimately became USL Pro, and then USL, then ultimately then the USL Championship. Um, but regardless, you know, you can see a lot of the like operations when it came to ticket sales or staffing trends or in how the game was continuing to grow. And so you would translate those, say, here's the historic data. But if we were moving forward, you know, obviously you get to make it your own to a degree, which really just providing some guide rails. Understood. So when, you know, when the conversation in 2017 was beginning in regards to like 
we're going to start USL one. It's going to be sanctioned third division pro in the US. What was the, the vision and intention behind it? Like why why start a division three uh, pro pro league when you guys already have two? Why not? Well, at that time, we only had yeah, Division Two. Um, we also, at that time, at USL had what was known as the PDL or Premier Development League, um, which was really the, and now it's USL League Two, but it was the Premier U23 competition during the summer for collegiate aged players. Not all of them had to be in college, but collegiate aged players um, to compete throughout the summer months, stay in shape, return to college if they were a collegiate player or continue to be seen by pro teams, potential scouts. So we identified there was a gap, right? If we went from directly to, from amateur up to or pre-professional to division two, you left that gap at division three. And I think that we started looking at that dating back to 2015, um, as far back as that. And it takes some time to develop the models and get things together. Uh, but it was an exciting time, right? The game was growing. Um, U.S. The women's national team was doing a great job. The men were doing good. Um, certainly that dark spot of not qualifying for the World Cup um, hurt us emotionally, but I don't think it hurt the game uh, for what we were doing too much. Uh, but, you know, we all grow from it. And so you saw a lot of people wanted to be part of growing the game here and then getting awarded the 26th World Cup. I mean, any conversation you're in at the 26th World Cup isn't mentioned. It doesn't feel like it's a soccer conversation anymore. So. It's a, everything's driving to this big pinnacle moment in our future, and we're excited for it. Amazing, Stephen. Could you share? Like, can you just dive a little bit deeper into sharing? I personally want to know too, but I think it'd be cool for the viewers. Like, just sure. share a little bit more about like your experience from 2017 to you know beyond in regards to building out the league. Like, what does that look like? Speaking to you know ownership mm -hmm. groups, we're talking about sophisticated individuals. Um, you know, investing into the league, building out their own club, like working with these different individuals and like obviously yeah. you're traveling all over the US. So yeah, a little bit more insight would be cool to hear. Yeah, I lived in hotels for a lot <laughs> during <laughs> that. Um, and actually, I think we had fun with it where um, Aaron Cranford, who was on our media team at that time, we he ran his own personal blog, a travel blog at one point. So it's a really cool travel video, like the old Indiana Jones style travel, you know, show that red line going somewhere. but. Um, really when we started looking at that project, there were pro league standards that are set out for division two and division three, and those cover everything from, you know, population size, stadium size, uh, time zones at the division two level of how many teams have to be in certain time zones. So we get pro league standards, you start diving into those and saying, okay, what are the boxes we have to check if we want to do this? Um, then we set out, started looking at what markets are of interest for us. We looked at everything from what's already in those markets. Is they have NBA, NFL, NHL, um, MLS already, certainly. Uh, what already has the USL market? Does it have minor league baseball teams? If they have stadiums, what stadiums are? I mean, you're going down this long rabbit hole of what are these other factors? And can we find these silver bullets that would make these cities phenomenal? Population was a big part of it. Um, you want to make sure the cities are large enough to sustain a team, um, not just but from the fanhood, but also the corporate entity side. Um, we want to put teams in positions to be successful for long term. So as we looked at that, we started building a formula out. And I think at one point we, we visited over 30 or 40 markets 
um, in a pretty short time period. But we already started reaching out to people in those markets through their sports commissions or through the city um, or people we knew, right? I mean, a lot of times there's a soccer network that would come there or people that already had League Two teams. Um, certainly, we were looking inward. Um, at that time, there were some MLS teams that had uh, second teams that they really wanted to put into the league. We had League Two teams that wanted to make that move up. We saw that in South Florida Tormenta. Um, we saw cities that have new teams like Greenville Triumph. And so we started looking at these markets of what are these opportunities that are out there? So we spent a lot of time on the road, um, a lot of time on the phone before we even got on the road, right? A lot of digital meetings as well, really preparing us to go out and meet these individuals. What makes USL? USL, why Division Three? Um, the hardest part was explaining the Division Two and Division Three levels of U.S. soccer because I think a lot of people were just unaware. And it's not a knock on them, right? I mean, so I worked in it. Great. Now I know. Um, so if they're on the periphery, maybe it's MLS market or the city near another USL team they understood. But some markets we were, you know, basically coming in talking about US soccer, how it's growing. I mean, how they can be part of that. Uh, I think I spent more time, my cohort and I that traveled with me, we spent a lot more time sometimes in breweries and baseball stadiums. Because we were going to look at venues that were already in place, but we were also going where our fan may be. And a lot of that was these microbreweries that are around town, because that's where we'd find people wearing Premier League kits or La Liga kits or, you know, Brazil kit. You'd walk down the city and find someone wearing a kit. Like, all right, we want to go talk to that person. And we would sit down with them, you know, sometimes and just, if they we didn't hear them too much, and say, we want to talk to you about soccer. You know, here's what we're trying to do. What are your thoughts? And really have an honest, open, candid conversations. What do you like? Do you play? Have you played? Do you just play FIFA um, or 2K? What What do you do? You know, and so they, a lot of people kind of pulled those layers back for us. Ultimately, what they would help lead us to who are the individuals in town that may be the right person to be behind this project. And in most cases, it worked out. Some cases it didn't, but that didn't mean we stopped trying it. You just kept pushing in that city, right? Of, Hey, we've got a venue. Now we just need a potential investor. Um, and you meet so many interesting people. I mean, a lot of people don't like the sales jobs, but I didn't see the sales. To me, it was just like, we're going to go look at all these cool cities and how we can just make sure soccer has a home there. Um, and it was, it was exciting to see. I mean, I never thought that of all those, my alma mater is the University of Tennessee. And having worked in the athletic department there, I was like, how cool would this be, right? To put a, a team in Neyland Stadium. Mm-hmm. Now, if you know the history, um, the field at that time wasn't wide enough. But the soccer stadium was built for the women's team. It was gorgeous. And that's where one you know, has played some games and teams are still there as they're looking for their long-term home. It's a great venue. And so you start to identify, well, okay, well, if we can't build our own or if we do decide that down that road, can we use a can we work with a university? Can we work with you know, a local school that has a FIFA grade surface, uh, like in Greenville? Um, or uh, if you're in Madison and Bree Steven Field is there, which the, the group uh, that owns the team already operated the summer baseball team, they were experts at being sports executives and understanding how to operate teams and. There's like 
this, these would be great groups to get behind this, you know, if they're right fit for us and we're right fit for them. So you spend a lot of time in that, but man, your head would spin. Because, okay, this is another great city. And if we get this city means that we could create a pocket of six, five or six teams, which means less flights, more bus travel, um, which every team I think would enjoy. Um, or if we're over here, we can start breaking with one more team. We could have five pods and then bring, and then it goes to more of a bracket style playoff. So there's so many different scenarios that would evolve daily based on who's coming in or who's delaying till year two. Um, and that was, like I was saying earlier, it could have been eight teams. It could be 10. It could be 16 the next day. You get excited the next day you're down to eight. And it's this cycle just worked through. So, um, but at the end of the day, we met We met it. We got sanctioning. It was thrilling. I mean, that was a day when we sent in the paperwork, you know, to the Federation. Like, hey, we've done all of our work. There's nothing else we can do at this point. I've been continuing to get ready for a season. We kind of like high-fived each other and then went right back to it. You know, there wasn't a lot of time to burn. So um, it was an exciting time. Definitely a journey I'll never forget working with, you know, groups of the league like Jake Edwards at the time, um, Dominic Miller, Francesco, Garrison Mason, um, Josh Keller, who spent probably more time with me than he ever wanted to, but he was my cohort and travel buddy. <laughs> so um, Aaron Cranford on the digital team, the group did a phenomenal job. That's amazing. I got to meet uh, Jake back in 2022 in Kentucky and, and Justin. Mm -hmm. I, I think I'm going to say it right. Papadakis? Papadakis. I got to meet Justin and a few other people, uh, Dan, Holman, Matt Retta. So it was, it was such an amazing experience. One of the things I really love about USL 1 um, is that, and USL Championship as well, is that you guys are going into these communities and bringing Soccer's that anchor and bringing these communities together. I love that. And mm -hmm. you guys are not looking to compete with the Real Madrid, the Manchester United. No, that's not what it is. We want to be a home for uh, a home. You'd say it better than me, but uh, bring a, put a place of soccer to bring the community together, to be home to that community. And uh, right. a place where, uh, you know, 5,000 plus people can come together and watch a game and spend some time, eat some food, get some drinks. And uh, you know, create some buzz in that in that city. So it's yeah. I love that. Um, you also mentioned one of the boxes, you know, one of the important boxes to check off is market size. I'm interested to get your thoughts on uh, Naples. They just recently made an announcement yeah. to launching a USL one team in Naples. I know I played down there with Naples United. I've seen that PSL, amazing, beautiful facility, uh, but small market. Or am I wrong? Uh, you know, it, like I think I told you in, my in our conversation the other day, sometimes things on paper don't really translate to being in the market. Um, there were times you'd be in cities and you'd feel this buzz. You know, Portland, Maine was one of those. And Gabe Johnson, Hoffman Johnson, there's done a great job. And that city is gorgeous. I can't wait for the first game. Um, but sometimes you get there and, you know, Statesboro, Georgia, had at that time had forty thousand people in it, and it was thirty-five minutes away from Savannah. But when you meet Darren Van Tassel and you see what he wants to do, starting in League Two, looking on the women's side, going up to the men's pro side, um, you're like, "All right, if anybody can make it happen here, it's you." And there's a it's a relationship, and he and Nietzsche Van Tassel have done a phenomenal job. The way that they're redesigning 
or building that stadium, it kind of redesigns the entertainment district in Statesboro, right? Which is the home of Georgia Southern. And so I think when you look at it, it's okay. You understand what's the corporate base for the individuals that are behind it. The fans should be different in every market a little bit, right? So some cities have older fans and some have the younger fan and some have um, everything in between. So, there's, but there's nothing wrong with it, right? So it makes up the fabric of those communities. And when you look at Naples, being a Floridian now, uh, for better part of my life, you think you have this, if you're outside Naples, you have an idea what Naples is. Because you hear, you talk, you've been there on vacation, or you've got, you know somebody, knows somebody down there, right? Um, but that's okay. Because it's for Naples, right? It's not, we're not building Naples pro soccer for the people in Jacksonville. That doesn't make sense. So they'll spend a lot of time in Naples talking to the community. I guarantee I see the stuff already posted now. They'll come up with their brand. They'll come up with um, how they want to engage and make it what the people want. And again, at the end of the day, we're stewards of the game. We're here to grow it. But it really, at the end of the day, it belongs to the communities in which these clubs operate. So it sounds cliche, but it truly is you know, a mindset that you have to keep. Um, you know, I know we use the two owners and investors a lot, but you know, you see what they do in the communities, a lot of time they're legacy projects and they're there for the city because the city may want to do it, but maybe the funding wasn't available at that time. So if a private investor comes in and can make it happen, there's a lot of benefit to that. Um, I'm excited for it. Plus, you know, it's another drivable game for me. So it's another one I get to go watch. 100%. And, you know, I said it to you before, I'll say it again. And, you know, I've been to Flor all around Florida, um, mm -hmm. you know, West Palm, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, Orlando, Tampa. Tampa's beautiful too. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've been for six months. Naples is my favorite spot in Florida, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, really <laughs> it's okay. Fun. I don't take offense to it. It's, it's uh, you know, if you like to fish, it's a great town for you when the tarpon running, right? So um, I've spent some time down there, not a ton, but it is a really cool downtown. And uh, that complex is gorgeous. So I'm excited to see what type of atmosphere they build there. Yeah, me too. Um, going back to USL, you've navigated U.S. soccer sanctioning. Um, mm -hmm. How long and difficult was that process? Uh, I don't think it was that long, to be honest with you. Uh, we had, uh, at that time, I think it was August, I think it was like August 14th or 15th of 2018, the information was due. And you know, that process has evolved uh, with the Pro League Task Force and their compliance you have a lot of documentation you have together to prove you check the each team and the league itself checks the boxes it's a quality control mechanism you know what i mean it, it, so you see it is for what it is and that's u.s soccer protecting the game 100 percent. so i have no problem with it um we use league one i think it was a little easier because we were doing it from the beginning so we knew what u.s soccer wanted to see so we were collecting a lot of that information on the front end, right? And building our own checklist to make sure that we had to gather a lot of that. Um, it wasn't as frequent prior to that, uh, I think, for the championship. And I may be wrong here, but now it's become a, an annual, if not, you know, semi-annual um, check for U.S. soccer. And I think it'll continue to go that way. The only thing you have about it, it's a big, it can be a big data gather for the club in the season so you kind of look at that balance of hey can we get this on the two-year cycle 
um, it would be better for the team, but um, it's team by team. So um, the process itself, I think they laid it out very cleanly for us. And we've submit information then, and I don't know what happened, to be honest with you, if there were more conversations I had outside my purview, but, you know, we submitted all the materials the best we could. Um, so the consultant they use, it sends it up to the board for approval and a recommendation. Uh, we were able to answer all of those questions. And so um, the toughest thing about that whole process was the facilities that were under development, whether a new field was coming in or they're working on a lease. Um, and having all that documentation ready to go so fast. But that's only because of the first year lead. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at the USL Super League, they probably went through the exact same thing in their sanctioning process to be a first division women's league. So, you know, we learn from it each time. It evolves every year. And then, you know, now it's probably a different format that you have to complete. So um, it, it was an appliance process that was needed. Um, but I think it also helped us, like I said earlier, it gave you guardrails of, you know, this is what we need. It's in black and white. It's not to be interpreted. There is no interpretation needed. It's simple. So um, and I think it helped the leagues when we were talking with some of the teams at the time. Say, we have to have this and here's why. It's not just because we want to collect the information. Here's how it's used. It doesn't get used beyond this. And, you know. If we have any collective feedback, we can provide that to them after the whole process. So let's get the sanctioning done, get the league approved, and let's get towards playing game. Understood. I want to go back here, uh, Stephen. You mentioned a Darren Fantasso. They're doing, they got a really, you know, I had them on the podcast. They're doing a really big project. You know, big like, fan. Yep. Yeah. 200 acres of land, huge, huge project, lots of real estate. Um, you know, what, you know, I've also listened to a lot of Justin's um, interviews. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, he always goes to real estate, the opportunity for mixed use development projects. Um, mm -hmm. Is there still opportunity for that in the in the future expansions of of other soccer teams in USL one? Yeah, I don't see why there wouldn't be. I mean, it's you know, you'll, there are a lot of real estate developers. Um, that are getting into you know pro sports in general. Uh, I think that's just a, a natural transition. I think it'd be phenomenally one. Who wouldn't want to have an anchor an anchor facility? Look at what Rhode Island is doing. Who wouldn't want that in, in in your town, right? A beautiful stadium with retail and housing. I mean, you you could spend instead of spending two day two hours at a stadium, you could spend all day in that area like Wrigleyville, <laughs> right, and enjoy it. And it's instead of it being just a two-hour match, you get a full-day experience for the family or your friends. So there's a family-friendly area. You could you know, maybe rent a townhome for the weekend there or something and just turn into you know, your bachelor parties or whatever. But um, if it's there, 100%, it makes complete sense. Um, now, it just depends if you need it all there from day one or can you build it in phases. And I think that's what you'll see more of where people are going to build least the initial stadium and they may have parking garages or hotels in near proximity um, and then build in the uh, the restaurant tours and the, the retail on the back end but yeah the, the plan of space will make completely sense where the exterior of the stadium was going to be lined with retail right and make it that full immersive experience and that was exciting to see amazing you uh, so brent one of the names i know i think it's brett johnson mm -hmm. Rhode Island, 
Um, huge project, as you mentioned. Could you just mention like everything that they're working on from like stadium to stadium size to the, you mentioned a bit of it, but like, can you mention all the real estate? What's the timeline for that project? And I think the number is mentioned in the millions. It's already been published, but if you could mention that as well. That'd be yeah, it's, it's published and what I can share. I mean, it's not, um, you know, I think if you look at any team prior to COVID, their plans have changed post COVID and not in a negative way. And that was purely supply chain and cost of materials. So stadiums that were once 20, 25 million, maybe immediately were 45, 50 million. And if you're an investor or an owner or part of a team ownership, and now you were set, but then you, now you have to go back and do more fundraising or find a capital stack somewhere. But it changed the game. So you alter plans, right? And maybe maybe you wanted a 10,000-seat stadium at first, and this is all hypothetical. But you had to back it down to 5,000 to get that built. And then you would phase the 7,500 or 10,000 when those times are right. Um, or maybe it's, maybe it's not the best world-class lighting from day one, but it meets you know, the Federation standards. Or maybe you couldn't install your uh, 360-degree LED board. You had to go with one side or something like that. So, you know, you value engineer it. Uh, but we're seeing that with modular stadiums now, which are kind of intriguing, where you can say, yep, this whole side, if we want to change that out, we could pull that whole sideline out and change it from bleachered seats to suites. Um, or maybe we want to move we want to move these on top of the end like the tower bridge battalion how it grew from year one to year two in sacramento to add more fan seating um you know standing room supporter group seating rather than just um family zones so every stadium has, will have a different life um they are operate similarly but different enough to have their own nuances but i think if you look at it each one's a little different right if you look at san jose's mls stadium it's beautiful the locker room, like in Louisville City, is a championship. When the players walk out, you have to stop the traffic flow in the concourse for the players to walk to the pitch. You know, different. But you get up close to the players, and I think that's what the fans love. Um, there are some, if you go to it Colorado, they enter from the north end line or behind the north, northern goal or others with the midfield entrance. Little things like that down to how the field oriented FIFA sets that as a standard, but uh, you do what you can with the land to maximize it. So everyone's plan is a little bit different. Um, so I think that's the fun part. But I think if you look at a lot of those real estate developments, you'll see a lot of commonalities in what is surrounding the stadium. Right? How do you handle the volume? Where's the parking located, the ride share, and then what type of uh, other entertainment options are in the near vicinity? Absolutely. Um, going back to Brett Johnson, um, he, he owns, you know, a few, I don't know the structure, so let me not put, put nothing wrong out there. He's a part of Rhode Island, Phoenix Horizon, and then also FC Tucson. Am I right there? Or I don't think Tucson's around anymore. Um, if my, if I look up league one. There's a federation statute that says you can't be a primary owner of two teams in the same division. Okay. Um, he owns, he's part of the ownership group of the team in England and also Rhode Island. Was 
part or is probably still part and can't speak to his ownership entity um was in phoenix phoenix did own fc tucson for a, a couple seasons so yeah it's muddy um but brett's been a huge um champion of the game and i'll spend a lot of time with him when we were trying to launch league one just picking his brain on different cities and markets and methodologies um huge fan of him and what he's done for the game and his background i mean I mean, how many wins he <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, you look at Phoenix, you look at what he's doing in Rhode Island but with this group there, and then what they're doing in England with Ipswich, I believe it is, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just the impact that one person has is unbelievable. I mean, who wouldn't want to be able to do that? Yeah, for sure. Um, in regards to PTO, private team owner of, of clubs, um, mm-hmm. obviously they have to meet a certain, uh, certain net worth. Yeah. Uh, and willing to own a certain percentage of the club. Um, with saying that, can the PTO be an entity or does it have to be an individual? I believe the pro league standard state has to be an individual. Um, and I haven't seen the most modern version of them, but it seems I would envision that down the road, you're going to start to see the value of these entities so large that you, there will probably be some desire for entities of some sort to own the clubs, maybe it's, you know, it's venture capital or um, an ownership group of some sort, but rather than one individual, but usually what that does, it makes one primary point of contact, right? Um, and they want to make sure that the team is um, funded properly, that one season doesn't ruin the club, you know? Um, and that's important. I mean, you have to have that consistency. So um, each league certainly take the U.S. soccer standards and elevate them at their own discretion. I mean, I don't think uh, you choose when you do that in order for consistency and safety, but I mean, you know, I'm sure uh, you know, ownership of MLS teams is far above what uh, U.S. soccer mandates for Division One status. And uh, there are plenty of groups in the championship and League One that are above what Division Two and Division Three status requirements are. So uh, at that point, it's the league discretion. Understood. Um, diving into Lexington Sporting Club. Mm-hmm. Started off back in 2022 and to, went on to 2023. Um, mm-hmm. You know, why why did you go from USL to, to club? You know, I think you usually see this transition of individuals at clubs go to leagues or people from leagues go to clubs. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. It's probably not so evolution, right? Um, I've been at USL nearly 13 years. You know, like I said, most of my soccer career was there. Um, they have been, they were phenomenal to me, um, and truly a family environment. And I was, I launched the expansion club strategy department after league one, which is focused on really helping teams once they're in the league, right. Once they've been announced or working to that announcement to their first game. And helping them build up their businesses. And part of me was in that mind of you're helping all these teams. It'd be great to go do it yourself sometimes, you know, like we were working a lot off of common practices and best practices learned, what we've seen in our own experiences and what we've worked with individuals on. Um, but I wanted to go put it into practice, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, I had the opportunity to go up to Lexington. I'm originally from Kentucky, so that was a special uh, thing for me to be able to be part of Louisville City early on and then in Lexington. So um, 
don't go back to my high school days. They weren't glorious on the field, you know. It was the only kid that wanted to play goalkeeper, but that's okay. Um, and I saw what the group wanted to do. They wanted to be a part of it, and they were they were gracious enough gracious enough to have me. Went up there in October of 22. Um, so we had, let's call it five months to be generous, to get ready for the season. Um, you know, we were doing whatever expansion club does. You know, you're, you're working 20, 22 hour days and, uh, working. What's next? Right. Player contract. Great. What's next? Player registration through FIFA. Great. What's next? Okay. Uh, marketing plans and ticket sales. And so it, it was a fun sprint. And I live for that energy. I think that's something I've always found where a normal nine to five is not me. Um, it's great at times, but being in college athletics, being in the event side, it's kind of like that second job, right? Your first job is the office, your second job is game day. And so that was fun to be a part of. And um, then after that, I was able to relocate back down to Tampa. So um, it was a fun venture to be on that side, having helped them come into the league, helping everything, you know, was part of them from when my early on, Lexington was the first city we visited for League One. As a potential expansion market, and from day one we were big on it. This, this town has so much opportunity. Uh, they were excited about it. A beautiful soccer culture there. Um, a lot of kids playing the game, top-notch men's and women's collegiate teams, and so it all just was falling into place. And to be a part of that was an honor. And um, so now it's what's up next. But yeah, we still track them. Still make sure they're doing good on the field. Happy to see some of the guys staying around for a year or two. And uh, hopefully, can you get more wins. Got it. So, where to next, Stephen? You tell me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's 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 been nice after Lexington to be able to take a little bit of a breather. Um, you know, being at the league for so long and immediately into the team side, that was about a year's worth of work in six months. Uh, so now, you know, still looking at the club side, still looking at league side, uh, trying to find that right opportunity for me and where I'm at in my career right now. Uh, I've become a little bit of a data guy, you know, like I love diving into the trends of sales and trends of, I mean, you look at any of the systems that teams use, you can find out when a shirt was sold and who it was sold to, but what time of day, how they bought it, where it's going to. Um, I find it very unique to see, kind of like we did with USL expansion of when does stuff occur, when these big moments happen, and then how do you find out who's behind it? And then how do you continue to capitalize on it and say, okay, well, if you have a, a club that has a youth club, right, and they have other facilities, and let's say you have an entertainment district, and you can find a way, and a lot of people are doing this now, and all these systems are tied together, you can find out who your super users are, like who's the guy that's coming in on game day, that's tailgating all day, using his parking pass, is eating our concessions, maybe he's a season ticket holder, maybe he's not. Can we create new season ticket holders out of there? Can we create special experiences for those individuals that are just that, you know, that bleed the club um, and are part of the blood and the fabric? And I think you can really create some unique opportunities that will make memories for people. And that's a special sauce, man. I mean, that's the fun part. So um, I think finding opportunities to continue to do that, you know, that's the goal. Amazing. Yeah, truly amazing. I think. Those those are the fans that every club wants, and that's that's what supports the club. The fan, um, we're now seeing you know quite a bit fan ownership 
uh, mm-hmm. you know, opportunities coming up for fans to own a piece of, of a club. So, that, you know, those are cool, very cool structures and cool opportunities for the public. Um, you know, and you, you, you mentioned starting off the league, you also won in 2017. So, you know, you, you've seen franchise fee of where it, where it started and where it is today grow. Mm-hmm. And where do you see it in the future? Do you see this trend still projecting upwards? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you're going to get to a point where there's a impact moment when you won't be able to buy your way into the game anymore. By meaning that starting brand new franchises, right? Like it's very much the minor league baseball model, the English football model. The teams are there. You've had a finite number. You're done. So the exclusivity increases franchise valuation because of scarcity. Um, but the teams still have to operate, right? So uh, I, I think you'll continue to see those climb. I, th- I think the entities will certainly think MLS will continue to increase their fee if they continue to take expansion clubs. Um, but I think each league is strategic about it and to make sure they're not diluting what they already have. Um, you know, I think you're going to see ultimately to a point where if you want to get into the USL championship, your only way in is starting at league one. Um, or down the road, do we ultimately see a, profe- a federation sanctioned division four league, which doesn't exist right now? So there isn't a Division Four men's pro or women's pro. Um, once you get below, below Division Three, it's all pre-professional and amateur. So it's interesting for me to see how that would work. But you also have your players' associations and minimal payroll, you know, minimum payroll minimums and things like that you have to maintain. So I don't know if that's feasible uh, to be realistic, but it might be. Um, or does I don't know how college soccer fits into that large mix again and other things, all these summer league teams. So I think it'll continue to grow. Um, but I think if I'm a team owner or steward, I want to see that grow as well. Because again, you're there's a benefit to getting in early, right? To being that first mover. Because you're going to continue to see your investment continue to grow. Yeah. What you know, everyone I think- I'm not an economist, I promise you. So someone can probably beat me up on that one, but it, yeah, I think I'd, I'd want to see that value continue to grow. Absolutely. So, you know, everyone wants to see, for the most part, everyone I've ever spoken to within the soccer space in the U.S., they want to see promotion and relegation. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the way leagues are structured, are, it's a closed shop. So, uh, yeah, to a degree, it's still pretty open in theory. So different discussion for another time, though. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. open, right? Like if, it's open to the point if you can meet the criteria, you're in. Um, no different than any other league that's out there. Just the investments a little more. Understood. I, you know, I'm just speaking out loud here. Is it? Do you ever see a period where like USL is packaging, you know, the USL Championship and USL One and, and like selling it to MLS and then that will enable MLS to be like, okay, we'll, we'll have full control oh, and we'll, we'll enable promotion and relegation. I'm just speaking out loud on a surface level, not fully. No, uh, I mean, I think USL has been pretty open, you know, the podcast I listened to and that I've watched and I think you know, even the article, USL has been pretty open about evaluating pro rel for a number of years now. Um, you know, I think they call them uh, moments of matter. 
an importance, right? Um, in games that who wouldn't want to see that here? You know, I think you have to look at the mechanism on the back end. Everybody wants promotion, not everybody wants relegation. Um, <laughs> what's behind that? How does that affect the franchise value? Uh, or is it something where it's a tiered system? Like if someone's an expansion club, you know, you're a championship for some reason, are you are you eligible for relegation year one? You know, after you, there's a lot of moving parts. And so, yeah, I, I certainly know fans want to see it after reading a lot of the message boards and stuff like that and having those discussions. I think it's just, you know, you're, we're 100 years behind England, right? It wasn't set up that way. So you're now looking at how do you make it work or how can you create competition that allows that? And the Open Cup allows a lot of that. I know there's a lot of drama going on around the Open Cup right now. But the Open Cup's the chance for teams in any division to potentially make that run, right? And to be able to play against teams of higher division. Uh, you look at FC Cincinnati's historic run before they went to MLS, right? In front of sold out Nippert Stadium at the University of Cincinnati. It was an epic to watch. Um, I think that exists for a reason, and there's tradition there. But we might see competition continuing to evolve to where it maybe allows more interleague. Now, whether someone ever says, would USL ever be bought by MLS? I, I, I couldn't even begin to speculate on that. Um, I think there's, I think USL certainly has an advantage um, in the second and the third divisions um, to be being able to be a little bit more nimble. Um, that may have some challenges at MLS, but I'm sure MLS, there's some guys in some back rooms working on a lot of different theories and, and models right now that uh, are trying to figure out their path forward. So um, I know they're all in on a lot right now. So I think it'd be interesting to see what happens in the next 12 to 24 months. Got it. You something, might... gonna, something big is going to happen before the World Cup, I'm sure. Really? Uh, <laughs> who knows? I mean, like, why wouldn't it be? That's your platform. You know, everybody else around the world, like, do they watch USL? Do they know about MLS? And, Vice versa, do they look at it and say, well, it doesn't matter because it isn't pro well? Some people, that's, that's what they're going to hang their hat on, and that's fine. Um, but the fact that you could lose it, I mean, it's thrilling, right? I mean, it's uh, also heartbreaking at the same time, so it's a door sword. Yeah. Well, you're on the inside, so, you know, I'm, I'm... Uh, not right now, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, I think it's one of those where, if it's done, a lot of people are doing a lot of due diligence on it to make sure that everyone's involved, everyone's on the same page, there's nothing hidden, um, that everyone's bought in and they understand the plan, and everyone's a full go. That's the way I would look at it. Absolutely. You mentioned U.S. Open Cup. U.S. Open Cup is a good example of what Pro Rel could be in the U.S. And uh, last year, it was a USL championship team against an MLS team, Orlando versus who was it again? Sacramento, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I went to that one. It was a fun match. What was the score? That game was close too, right? Or Yeah. I want to say it was one or two nil. I think near the end, you started to see the, the gap. I mean, one guy in Orlando's roster probably had the payroll of Sacramento, right? And, and that's not a knock, but it was just a great run that they had. And you heard, you heard some people talk about the stands, but it wasn't a given. Sacramento had their chances. Orlando had theirs. Um, great to see them both with USL roots. You know, I saw Orlando brought Dom Dwyer back for their uh, their kit drop. 
So that was cool to see this year. Uh, they'll throw back to the Lotto uh, purple and red three lion kit. So uh, it's 10 years for Orlando City. So yeah, it's just kind of been one of those really cool things to see those two teams that have roots come up together. And, um, and really, Sacramento, when Orlando came in, they set the bar, right? Then Sacramento came in and set the bar. But they learned a lot from the Orlando route. So every team that started wanting to come in, they wanted to beat that team. You know, they wanted to beat that one, be the next record holder. And so um, I think you look at both of them, and they both have tremendous histories, both have tremendous fan bases. Um, I, it was just a phenomenal event. So I wonder who makes it this year. Sacramento was to win that game. What would that, what would that have done for, for USL and that club? That is a question I couldn't even answer. Um, I, I think uh, there were some teams that probably in early rounds, as a fan, this is not as soccer as, like, as a fan, probably overlooked some of their competition. Like we even see that in the early rounds, right? If someone sees an amateur team or a pre pro team come in, you get shocked at home. You never want that to happen. Um, but that happens. Those cup sets are what we live for. And so, the David versus Goliath is another the other analogy, but we don't see if that's appropriate in some some of the matches. But you know, domestically it would have been big, I think, um, for Sacramento to win that one, or Cincinnati years ago to make that run and make it through, or Richmond who's made some great runs in the year. Um, but to get one in the modern area the era that's won it would be huge. Um since I believe since MLS came around, there hasn't been a non-MLS team that's won the World Cup. Because I think it was what, Richmond won one, and I think in Rochester, and then after that, it was uh, all MLS. I could be inaccurate there, but I'm pretty sure it's accurate. So I think you do a lot, but hey, that's why you play the game. Any given day, the ball can go one direction or the other, or a deflection, or um, who was it? Um, forget his name right now, but the goalkeeper from FC Cincinnati, when they took Chicago Fire to the shootout in the one, and we, I mean, he just had the game of his career signed with Atlanta United for the next season, right? So, it's that opportunity on the national stage to show your city off. And, you know, we sat with the Sacramento fans in Orlando, um, just where the ESL tickets were, and what a great experience just to walk down the street with them and hear about their journey as fans to walk in the stadium with them and say, man, I wasn't going to miss this game. This is my club. It has been since day one. That's what makes me proud of working in the game. You know, a long time ago, living in Florida, I went to the movie theater and there was a kid wearing a Sacramento uh, kit. And I went up to him, not in a weird way, if you don't mind, I I work in soccer. Where did you get that kit? And the young man said, I have a friend that lives in California. And I went there for the summer, and I went to the team's game. It was a pretty cool team. And I'm like, I brought that team into the league. You know, so it's kind of like this full circle moment of just kind of getting emotional off to the side of like, <laughs> you know, I mean, this team, it's, it's, that's what teams can do, and it's the passion it brings. And um, it was just a really cool moment. Yeah, that no, that's such a cool moment. Um, thank you for sharing that. I mean, um, would you think, you would? what would you, let me ask you this. How did Didier Drogba playing for Phoenix change Phoenix? You know, I mean, if when you see those type of Joe Cole in Tampa, um, and somebody's got Freddie Do playing in Tampa, I think, for a little bit, right? So you see these names coming around, and you're like, they can still make an impact. 
no, it's huge. It's a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's growing the game. Uh, talking, talk about growing the game. The United States will be hosting Copa America coming up mm-hmm. uh, the next two years. The biggest one, 2026 FIFA World Cup. And then maybe uh, FIFA's Women's World Cup will be hosted in the U.S. too. So before we actually even go to the World Cup uh, um, and coming to, towards the end here, we got, we could say the word Messi. We could say the name Messi. <laughs> Messi, not only Messi, we got Suarez, Sergio Busquets, Jordi Elba, all that. They're all wearing pink with David Beckham in Miami uh, in MLS. What are your thoughts and, and how does it make you feel? I, I think everyone should say it's exciting. I mean, if you, did, <laughs> if you don't, I don't, I don't know how a football fan, I mean, it's, it helps. 100% it helps. I mean, I think I saw what was the headline yesterday that Inter Miami may be looking at $230 million in revenue this year alone. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But strategic decision to bring in Messi, certainly. Um, makes them even more global than they already were. I think it gets to the point where if you looked at Juve when they changed their brand, if you remember how dramatic that was. Um, when Juventus made a change, they had this vision of becoming more than a football club, right? And they went into like a media company and production and apparel and all this stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if Inter Miami's following or creating their own path of likeness where it's more than just football here now. I mean, it's just, I went to Orlando when he was supposed to play in that game and he wasn't able to play because he was hurt. I've never seen so many messy jerseys in one place in my life. Um, and it didn't matter. It, it was, it, it's a movement. It's a cultural movement that you want to be a part of. You want to experience it because everyone's there for the game. Um, and see this one guy uh, come out on the field and just to be able to see the goat in person. Um, I don't know. That's all we bought. Like, it's great to be able to see him as close to home as can. So, um, I'd like to venture down to Miami. I'd love to see that stadium. They've done a great job down there. Um, and it'll continue to grow. But I know they're their favorites. I think now all, all, all the bet makers and odd takers out there are, you know, maybe the favorite for the season, but you just never know what's going to happen in a, a long season. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just, I, I'd love to see it from the outside in. What would it be like at a, another country that are, if you're Argentinian, um, what are they covering Messi every, every game here? I imagine they are. Um, or if you're in Barcelona and you're still a huge fan, are you still getting a ton of messy news? You know, so I, I just think it's fascinating to see and um, on the global play, and I think he's a good fit for Miami. I mean, who would say he's a bad one? Yeah, and it's it's pretty cool to see that like Messi won the 2022 World Cup to then sign and play with MLS. Like it's such a I, I don't know. You couldn't tell a, a better story than that for mm-hmm. Americans, MLS. And I mean, that's that's pretty cool. It's not like you're getting Messi off PSG and he didn't win the World Cup. It's like Messi just won the World Cup and he's coming to America. Um, yeah, I mean, you look. I think we trace it back to the Beckham rule. Uh, Beckham going to L.A., right? Thierry Henry at Red Bull for a while. Um, Ibra. You know, oh, certainly. Oh, geez. I, I, sorry if I didn't bring it up. 
Yeah, uh, Zlatan was amazing. I love seeing the players come here. I think they recognize it, that the league is a league of opportunity, whether it's competition, whether it's profile, whether it's whatever reason they need a you know, flamey lifestyle that they want in the U.S. But that's cool to see to me. Um, you get to see those big personalities or, you know, and, and it's just different, right? So I love that we're developing our homegrowns, but it's kind of neat to see some people saying, I want to go play in the United States, play in MLF, um, experience it, and then we should lean on them for the big differences, right? They may say our players need to go to Europe. They may say they need to go to South America or um, Asia to play. Our players need experience. If, we, if we're going to make a serious run at the World Cup, we need to be a serious run at it. So I, I think it's exciting to see. Um, I have no idea what this season holds. I just can't wait to watch it. Yeah. And the last question I'll, I'll end up here just because I want to be respectful of your time. Oh, um, there you go. Is the 2026 FIFA World Cup hosted by Canada, Mexico, and the United States. That's that's the first time something like that's being done, but uh, huge, huge uh, mm-hmm. opportunity for the U.S. A lot of attention to eyeballs. Yeah, a lot. Of, you know, the, the joint bid, uh, exciting to see that. I think you're starting to see more of that at the FIFA level now when it comes to World Cups, where countries going together uh, to do joint bids. I like I, I think I was always wondering if AT&T Stadium was going to get the final, and uh, I know they didn't, but I was like, that seemed to me like a great place to have it. But, you know, put up in the Northeast, that's fine. I think it's just a way to showcase all three countries. Uh, Canada's growing their game. Mexico's growing. Uh, you know, the U.S. certainly investing a lot of money into the game. So I, I look forward to it. I'm already trying to figure out how I can, you know, see as many matches as possible. Um, between Miami, Atlanta, and Houston, and Dallas as well. I guess maybe in Kansas City. So uh, we'll we'll figure that out. But it might be one of those where we go out west and watch the U.S. the whole time and uh, see it root on the boys in the red, white, and blue. But yeah, that one's going to be epic. It's, yeah. it's going to set a blueprint for future World Cups, no doubt. Hey, Stephen, if you could get some some extra tickets for me, I'd love to tag along. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would. I wish they were what we paid in 94 for those tickets on the street, but um, I don't think that's going to be the case. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, I, I think the neat thing about that is if you want to watch a game, you're going to have a chance. And you just have to figure out if it's in your market, if it's a close city, or is it one where you really just want to go watch one in Canada? Go watch it in Canada. Go watch it in Mexico. Check out that different culture. Check out the different environment for a match. I mean, FIFA's running it all anyway. So, you know, it's a great time of the year to take a vacation and go watch some awesome football. Absolutely. Well, uh, Stephen, I'll end it up there. Was there anything I missed or that you wanted to add in? Oh, man, I appreciate it. I love talking the game. I think you know that. Uh, our hour-long call turned into two hours two days ago. Uh, I, I would say one thing. Keep an eye on these markets and these cities that are launching in USL. Um, you're going to have some that just catch fire and they're doing great things in their city. Yeah, they're winning on the field, but a lot of times, you know, go to social media, find out what they're doing in their community with their fans and how their fans are engaging with them. Because to me, man, that that's just unbelievable. If you, the one example I would give you, um, that always kind of tugged on my heartstrings was in Sacramento and Erica Bjork, who was the VP of marketing there at the time. And, their partnership team 
um, and our ownership, they worked with their local healthcare partner, um, and they did a Capes for Heroes program. And that's it's this, the hospital was already doing this, and so the team got behind it. But what they would do is kids that were battling illness, um, they made superhero capes for the kids, and the kids would wear them around. Well, the team partnered with them, and what they did is they brought some kids to the match to beat, you know, walk out of the club, and the players wanted to wear skate, wear capes too. And you watch it, and you're just like, this is so cool to see players embrace what these kids are going through and help them fight through these down days. And next thing you know, like fans are making their own capes for Superhero Night, and then bringing fabric to donate to the hospital to make more capes. And I think it's authentic. You know, it's not fabricated. It's not, oh, we have to do this because it's cool. They did it and they did it, right? I mean, it wasn't something they had to commercialize. It wasn't selling sponsorships behind it. It was a community thing and it was a Sacramento thing. And that was the one I've always kind of used as the litmus test or the bar for how do you make an impact? Because if you went back and you watched it, I mean, I'm sure there wasn't a dry eye in that stadium during that walkout. And, you know, that's just pretty cool. That's a, that's a connection that is rare. So I think it, it, that's the goal of, of teams in this country, regardless of what level they're at. The right opportunity for players, the city, community, future executives, but also make that city connection to the residents of, hey, we are your team. We want to represent you. We want you to come out and have fun, watch us, cheer us on, but at the end of the day, we're here for you. And that's pretty awesome. 100%. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. I look forward to learning more from you um, and, and asking more questions in the future. Anytime. You got my number, man. Call me anytime you want. Sounds good. Uh, well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the One Star Condition podcast today. Thanks for having me. And then uh, we'll look forward to your future episodes as well.